Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today is part two of my conversation with my guest, Ryan Coulter. He's the founder of the James Brand Knife Company. If you didn't listen to part one, it would make more sense to pause and go back, but you do you. Today, we cover how sweating the details is really key to creating a beloved brand. We discuss Ryan's vision for his products to help people be a little more in the moment and how the true role of a business is to generate value just to distribute it back to the world. Isn't that nice? I know. So join me as we bring this one to a close with part two. What I'd be interested in now, there's people who are already using knives in their day-to-day lives for whatever reason. Some of it is to the extreme where they're hiking mountains for a living or traveling around the world for a living and things like that. Are you trying to put it in people's hands that are not used to having a tool like this in terms of who you're actually trying to attract? Yeah, I think we philosophically want to do that. I don't think from a marketing perspective, we've done a really great job of doing that. I think a lot of our current customers are people that already have and use these products, but they probably haven't really thought about them ever from a brand perspective (laughs) until now. So I think a lot of what we do is replace or elevate this product and experience for people that are already aware of it. We think that getting this product in the hands of people who don't typically have or use it is going to be really important to us over the long haul. Mm-hmm. Partially, that's a timing and a positioning conversation. And I think the best example of this, by a long shot, is Swiss Army. We've talked about all these other knife brands, but then over here on the side is Swiss Army. And you know, they're red and round and shiny and available everywhere. Right. Swiss Army knives are the most made and sold knives in the world by a factor of at least 10. Yeah. And the positioning there is critical because you never think about the Swiss Army knife as a weapon or as something even really dangerous. It's just this useful thing that is kind of always around. And that positioning is really positioning that I want us to have. Mm. But it takes a little while to kind of work our way into that, I think. I think it's very easy for someone who has never been in this category to get a Swiss Army knife and be like, oh, this thing is so useful. I'm going to put it right on my keys. I'm going to keep this one here. I take this one camping. I use the screwdriver and the bottle opener. And I've got this knife blade to do other things. So I'm in awe of that company. I carry a Swiss Army knife with me all the time still because it's really incredible value for the dollar. They've just done such a good job of actually staying out of the fray of being technical or scary and just being utilitarian. And so to answer your question, I don't think we do a very good job of doing that yet, but I think that the company believes that's a really big opportunity for us kind of once we get it right. But our pathway has been to sort of start with people who are already kind of believers and evangelists Mm -hmm. and get the brand sort of cemented a little further up the pyramid so we can then kind of take our message down. I expect that in the next 10 years, the the products that will really be foundational for us will be products that compete with Swiss Army, who are, you know, they're broad, they're non-scary, they're multifunctional, they may be smaller, rounder. I mean, we'll take our design prowess to that area, we'll elevate some of the materials, you know, we won't compete from a dollar-to-dollar standpoint with Swiss Army, but I think we will be like, like a premium Swiss Army, Swiss Army, we're up here. So I think we're headed there, but I don't think we do a good job of doing that right now. You know, obviously this is an audio experience. 
So why don't you describe for our listeners your best-selling product and why is it considered premium? What is it about it that makes it special in your mind? Once upon a time <laughs> in the world. Everyone so grab I, your little squares of carpet. We're having story time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think our best-selling product overall is a product called the Carter. And it is, I'm going to draw a Venn diagram in your minds. On one circle is kind of this idea of lifestyle and sort of this aspirational lifestyle of people that are outdoor, kind of living their van life, doing this urban outdoor active thing. And on the other side is what I would call sort of knife nerds. And these are this group of people that we really need, even if they're not our customers, we need to kind of work with them to make sure we're doing the right things and then validate the decisions that we're making so we have credibility. And so in those two groups, with the Carter, there's a lot of overlap in that we're using some really good materials in the steel. We're using some really good features in terms of sort of the lock. And so the audience, like the knife nerd validating audience. First of all, I had no idea that there were knife nerds in the world. So this is great. Oh my gosh. It is a wormhole. And again, this is a wormhole that I tripped into, fallen <laughs> into your head first and, you know, been eaten alive in there and crawled out and begged for forgiveness <laughs> and jumped back in. And, you know, part of our benefit is that we didn't live in that world. We don't know that. Yeah, yeah. And so we were able to operate sort of without those limitations. But there's a big, you know, like there's a watch world, like there's an anything world. And yeah, right sure. Now, Right now, there's a Facebook group talking about the microphone that you're talking, you know, know, you're speaking, (laughs) totally nerding out on it. And so the Carter, I think, does a very good job of being appealing aesthetically, size-wise, to this lifestyle world, but having the features and sort of the right things to also appeal to the knife world. And so that, for us, is definitely a bestseller, and it fits that sort of mold of like, hey, this is a knife you can keep on your dresser and carry with you every day like into the office, but also outside for adventures. It's got really good features and it will serve you very well. And so there's great overlap between those two sort of big important market segments for us. You know, to kind of contrast that with a knife that we call the Redstone, that is a beautiful knife, pretty innovative. It's really big in sort of the lifestyle world but it's a little more affordable. It doesn't have necessarily the size or the steel or some of the other features that the knife nerd world likes. So the knife nerd world doesn't like that one as much. The lifestyle world likes it more, but because it doesn't have overlap, we don't sell as many of that in total. We sell a lot to the lifestyle segment and not as many to the uh, knife nerd segment. Uh-huh. I got it. I got it. I learned something new today. I love this podcast. I love it. I'm going to send you some links and you can just get a drink yeah. and sit down and <laughs> hold on tight and your mind will be blown away. Um, yeah, yeah. I can see that they're probably analyzing the type of screw heads you use oh. and the, I mean, everything. Okay. You, I got you. you. Got it. Start with the believers. In this case, knife nerd enthusiast. Who knew? You would say that Ryan's marketing challenge was to focus enough on feature function in order to gain credibility with these people. But then it's really about placing a lot of emphasis on design aesthetics and lifestyle. That's the difference between a product versus building a brand. And that's how you create waves in a sleepy category because people don't just buy brands, they join them because it's delivering on a promise. Think about the success of Dollar Shave Club. They offered affordable monthly razor subscriptions. 
And up until that point, the razor category remained unchanged for decades, and it was monopolized by only three big players. And they shook up the category so much and made everybody so nervous, Unilever felt compelled to buy them for $1 billion, with a B. Yep. Let's talk about your marketing. How are you spreading the word about the James brand today as opposed to when you started? What works for you? What doesn't work for you? Is there anything that you've done that you've like, oh, never doing that again? (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Every day. Well, I'm saying, and I'm sure, I think that you will hear this too, like the marketing realm right now is maybe as tumultuous and sort of wavy as it has ever been. And Mm -hmm. so figuring out what your mix is and what it should be is very difficult. And there's this process that you go through with any business, I think, where you cast a wide net, you figure out sort of what works, and then you start to kind of dive deep into what works and try to make it more efficient, fuel it more, get better at it. But while you're doing that, especially now, the world continues to change. And so by the time you get this all figured out and operating at max efficiency, (laughs) it's actually not impactful anymore. And so we compare and contrast, and Mike Hofer is my business partner, we both came out of the snowboarding world. And in those days, in in days before e-commerce, there were like three or four magazines, there were two or three videos, Right. and you had one selling cycle to these same retailers. Like it couldn't have been any more clear in terms of what you needed to do and how you needed to do it. And we compare that to like this always on, you know, non-seasonal, crazy global, you know, wholesale e-com world. And so I would say in general, the marketing has been very difficult. The the fundamental things for us are creating great content. And so for us, there are two things that are really important, especially because, you know, we're we're mostly a DTC brand, 70, 60, 70% of our business is done directly through our store. And so we need to do a really great job of representing the product on the site. And so photography historically in this space was terrible. It was very bad. You know, we have very high photographic standards and we brought that to bear in the category. So we spent a lot of time and money doing product photography and really getting in and sweating those details and then using the camera to try to bring them to fruition in front of people. And we get two responses like, oh, this is by far and away the best photography in this industry maybe in a lot of industries. Yeah. And two, no one's ever done that before. No one's ever gone in and taken detailed, you know, high resolution shots of the fasteners and the screw heads. And this is a detail exercise. These are small, valuable products like watches. Mm-hmm. You have to come in close to really explain right. where the value comes from. So our photography is very important to us. And so we create a lot and we share that a lot with wholesale partners with ambassadors on our sites, in our newsletters. And then we try to do a lot of brand storytelling with people and actually, again, show products in context, in scenarios that you might hope to find yourself. Right, Um, right. So from a content perspective, those things are really important to us. Email is really important to us. Our list and staying in sort of chronic communication with our number one customers and showing them this is what's up now. Here's what's about to drop. Here's what's going on. I mean, that's a really important channel for us. You know, our relationship with Instagram and social media, that was a fundamental part of our business early on from an awareness standpoint, but it's really changed a lot and we're, we're chasing it all the time because I want it to be important, but we are in the dangerous goods category. And so 
we are barred from doing any kind of paid social work from oh, any, of the, right? any of the big platforms. And so we've no. never been able to do things like paid social. And I think even right now, I think we are shadow banned on Instagram just because of the category. And mm. so a lot of our content is restricted and can't be seen even by our audience of about you know 70,000 folks. Interesting. Um, so our growth has really slowed in Instagram just because we've been throttled by them. Yeah. And, you know, this has happened for a lot of people just in the change from, you know, really leaning into video versus still photography. Our brand is really based on still photography, on capturing moments. And the idea of us doing, you know, silly TikTok videos of our premium products is very difficult. No, that doesn't appeal to you. That's not on it, brand. It is not on brand, and it's really it, it creates a lot of tension because it's like, hey, on brand or not, like, what are you going to do? And yeah, I have been you know, maybe to a fault a little bit stalwart in just saying like, we are not going to do that. And I think it's a design problem that we're working on. Is like, mm-hmm. is there an on brand solution that? actually sort of meets the demands of these new formats. Right. I don't have an answer to that one yet. Yeah. I can't find one. I'm not going to be dancing no, that's fair. Anytime, anytime soon. So it's been interesting to watch. Instagram has sort of changed from being wildly important to us to being less important. Text message has gotten important. In reality, I think the most important channel for us moving forward will be people, uh, people that we work with directly, people that we don't work with directly. You know, we try to get product in the hands of a lot of really interesting people. I think just based on maybe just my age and, and the general experience level, we have direct access to a lot of very interesting people and a lot of very interesting people like us and the brand. And so having those people tell our story and helping us create content, I think is really important. But I think for us, from the longer perspective, maintaining a direct relationship with our customers, without a Facebook or an Instagram or anyone in Mm -hmm. the middle, is going to be critically important. Because when they decide to change for their own reasons, it pulls the rug out from underneath all of us. Oh, sure. We're kind of learning the lesson now with Instagram and being like, okay, this thing that was critically important has now changed and we haven't changed. And this is what happens when you're reliant on a system that you don't own and control. Versus our email list where we can grow that and we have great engagement and commercial results from our email list. And it's because these people want to hear from us directly. We can control the message and how it's delivered. And so things like direct mail, things like our own retail stores, we are going to go direct to our customers. We can't have other people standing in the way. Yeah, that makes total sense, especially in the particular challenges that you have with your category. So I think that's smart. Creating a marketing plan that works for your business is hard enough without throwing in the words dangerous goods in there. So what do you do if some channels aren't an option? So one thing I'm picking up from Ryan is having the patience to really figure out what your marketing mix is. Placing some bets, experimenting with the constant algorithm changes in social. But he also talks about focusing on the channels that you actually have control over, like nurturing email fans. Yeah, email is still a thing and your subscribers are the first people to keep informed and happy. That's the gold. The James Brand website is a treat really for both first-time visitors and fans. You have to check it out. The photography alone, as Ryan describes, is compelling and it tells the brand story from that high-res detail of screw fasteners to full bleed lifestyle shots. 
Each detail really does create even more space between the functional positioning of their competitors. It's that attention to detail is how brands are showing people that they actually give a damn. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what's really surprised you during this entire business journey? So when did you start? What year? 2011. Okay. So as you're reflecting back and you're thinking about what's next for the James brand, what's really surprised you that's sticking out in your mind? Some of that is what we were just talking about. A thing that I never considered when we started this was this whole concept of dangerous goods. We are treated exactly the same way as any firearms company. And so part of our positioning was like, no, no, we're just these super helpful, useful, like daily things. Yeah, no, no, we're, we're friendly, guys. No, no, we're, no, we're friendly. friendly. Hey, what about us? <laughs> and so having that obstacle show up and persist and really having no way to get around that, mm. and we're not alone in that, was a big surprise. And okay. so it has made us become very agile and sort of figure out how to do it yourself. I mean, if you were not in the dangerous goods category, especially a few years ago, I would have told you that, hey, you need to get an email platform and you need to work up your paid social strategy. And so to not have that as a tool in the tool chest has been very surprising, but I think it has you know, forced us to be more innovative in how we get our message out there. Yeah. Um, so that was a big surprise. I think initially how difficult it actually was to get product made was a big surprise. I just thought it was going to be easier to get it done locally. And there is something, and I hope to see this change, and there's definitely you know more of a push to make things in the United States. And we have a couple of really new and, and good partners helping us make things domestically. It's yeah. always been very important for the brand, but there just has never been sort of a service culture here with sort of OEM manufacturing in the way that there has been in Asia for 30 years plus. Right. I mean, the Obama documentary, I think it's American Factory, did a great job of sort of pointing this out. But, you know, I could beat my head against the wall in the United States trying to get anybody to help me. And at the same time, I could fly to China and someone will pick me up with a sign and take me to a hotel and sit me in a room with a room full of engineers, designers, product developer, right. manager, and get after it. They are there to earn my business and make something with me. Wow. And that was surprising to me as well. And if we had that sort of mentality here stateside, I think the economics, global economics, would look very different. Even if the costs were different. It has nothing to do with the cost. It has everything to do with the orientation and the service mindset. Yeah, that's interesting. It was very interesting. And, you know, I hope that changes, but that was a surprise. How difficult it was, like, you know, literally having to make a decision about killing off this idea or making things in China. I mean, those were the two choices that we had at one point. And that was a surprise. I surely did not expect that to happen. Wow. Yeah, I think that's unfortunate. I hope to your point, the culture can change and I could see it being very service oriented over there. And not only is it about cost and efficiency, but it's about just getting it done and having the willing people on the other side of the table there and ready. That's half the battle right there. Absolutely. And it, it, there is a market difference in general, when I'm speaking, of course, in big generalities here, between the way that that is sort of approached with Asian and other offshore manufacturing and the way that we generally run it here. We've got some great exceptions here and we want to be part of that solution, like a better way to fix the problem than get in there and try to fix it yourself. Yeah. But 
that was a surprise and it is something that I hope that we kind of can help to resolve in the future. Yeah, very cool. All right. So why don't we start winding down with, I want to understand big picture thinking from you, Ryan, about what impact are you trying to make with the work that you're doing through the James brand? That's a great question. I mean, there are, there are a few different ways to think about your impact overall, but I do really think that we are, and Patagonia does a great job of this, but, you know, a fewer better mindset. Like, I really want people, I say this about stuff in the house all the time, like buy once, buy for life. Mm-hmm. Find a brand or a product or something that you totally believe in that meets your needs and buy it and then be able to maintain it, service it, keep it for a lifetime. I don't like the idea of disposability. The good news with a lot of our stuff, it's easily you know, repaired, recycled, it's metal, it doesn't typically go into landfills. But I want people to be able to sort of invest in a brand and a product and be like, that's my brand for life. Like, those guys have my back. So buy fewer things, buy better things and keep them for life. And so I'm hoping that the James brand in so doing can really enable people to live their best lives and do a better job. You know, if I can get a kid outside whittling a stick instead of playing a video game, even if I can get my kid to do that, (laughs) that is a victory for us. And can we help people establish this better balance between digital simulations and actual analog physical experiences? Can we get people to snap into being a little bit more in the moment and focusing a little closer in than on the dire predictions of the news? Um, God, that's so good. Yes. I yeah. hope we can do some of that. And then for me, you know, this is, uh, it's a big deal. And, you know, you don't really realize it until you're deep in it. But, you know, we're an employer of about 20 people. We have benefits. We try to make people's lives better locally. You know, we give a lot of money, you know, relatively speaking, to the community and to causes that we care about here. And so if the idea of any business is to generate value and then sort of distribute that value, uh, generating value for people that trust us with their careers. I mean, you know, we pay people's mortgages now. They choose to come and work with the James brand. And we work very hard. You know, Mike and I are both have been in business for a long time and done a lot of this. So it's really important for us to build people up, make people better, help them learn. A lot of these people are not going to be with the James brand forever, but they're going to come out of the James brand experience changed, better, more educated, I hope, and ready to tackle other problems in the world. And so, you know, being able to operate locally and support local causes and put some value back into the community, I think is really important to me. And that's one of those, you know, you're asking about things that are surprising. All of a sudden you start hiring people and, you know, the thing is growing and you don't really get to reflect on what that means until a global pandemic hits. And all of a sudden you have to start talking about furloughing people. Yeah. You want to give yourself a heart attack, get a business that's growing throw in a pandemic and then like one morning have to start talking about furloughing people and cutting salaries where literally 48 hours earlier that was never on your radar right so really you know that you start at the top that that impacts you maybe first and foremost but immediately it impacts employees people who are counting on you and that is tough yeah But, you know, when times are good, I'm very proud of the fact that we are trying really hard to give our employees a great experience, make them better. I love working with people. Being part of the Cortland local working community, I think, is a a bigger deal. And it's just not one of those things you would think about when you start the brand. But Mm -hmm. it becomes more important. We're like, wait, we actually have a lot of people. Like, there's mass behind this. And so that, to me, is really important. There's a lot of Jameses in Portland. There's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Write the headline five years from now in a glowing feature story about the James brand. Put your creative director hat on for a second. The James brand redefines the idea of daily carry once again. That's an easy out because I didn't make any kind of commitments. But uh... <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, what is next? You mentioned aspiring to being Swiss Army one day. So can you talk a little bit about what might be next in terms of function? In general, I mean, I think we are a bit knife focused right this moment. And I kind of, you know, I think we hope that the business is always maybe, you know, 60 to 70% pocket knives. That is always the literal sure point. But, you know, we have set up the business kind of with this three-category structure where there's knives and tools, and then there's pens, pencils, and communication. And this idea of analog communication, sketching, taking quick notes, things that I think the phone and all of the other digital experiences are really bad at, is really important to us. And, you know, partially, I just always carry in my pocket a knife and a pen and a notebook. And those three things and my phone will get me through almost anything. And so Mm -hmm. you'll see we had gotten into that space and we had done some really good work in the communication space, but we kind of divested of that during the pandemic. Just we had to kind of focus. And so we'll be coming back into that category far more firmly next year. And then in addition to that, we are you know, we do a category that we call carry, which right now is sort of carabiners and you know things that help you carry other things. Mm-hmm. But that category can definitely be bigger with things like, you know, wallets, bags, backpacks, money clips. Sure. Um, and so we will be sort of expanding those other two categories to sort of meet up with where we are in the night space and that should give us two things. Like one, it should allow us to help people sort of coordinate cross-categorically into actually building these little pocket collections. You know, we are kind of a pocket atelier in some ways. And like, mm-hmm. hey, yep. this pen and this knife and this other and this money clip all come from the same brand and they share some materials and finishes. And it yep. all makes sense to me. It's coordinated. And it pushes back against this idea of us, the dangerous goods brand, a bit. Like, no, 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 we're, we're sort of the pocket brand. We want to own your pocket. We want to help you with these things that you do carry day in and day out. So you know, I think next year, there's more of a focus on communication. The year after that will be more of a focus on carry. And we kind of work through these cycles of like knives and tools, communication, carry. Yeah. And then we'll see beyond that. I mean, those are the three categories and that should keep us busy for a long, long time. And yeah. there are other categories that are tangential to this that we could surely explore, like bigger backpacks and bags and you know the flashlight market. There's a whole world of like the everyday carry flashlight folks. I have a lot of flashlight nerds out there. You have no idea. It's crazy. What's out there? Yeah. All right. That's exciting. That's really exciting. I see all the legs of the stool come together. So that's really fun. Is there anything that we haven't covered about you or the James brand that you'd want people to know? Well, I think we covered it a lot. I mean, we'll see what the comments come back and see if we missed anything. But I think we did a pretty good job of kind of hitting all the corners. Good. All right. Well, again, I'm really happy. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Sure, Jack. It's always fun to actually reflect on what the heck it is that we're doing and talking about <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Okay, that wraps up part two of my conversation with Ryan Coulter, founder of The James Brand. I'll start by saying the fact that Ryan wanted to personify the brand and name it James after their aspirational customer is a win. It places the wants and needs of James right at the center of everything they do. 
They created products for James, who was in that forgotten middle of category. I think it's pretty brilliant. After interviewing master craftsmanship brands like Blackwing, Grove Made, and Benedetto Guitars, I see a longevity theme at play. Buy fewer, better things and just have them for life. And Ryan's approach to marketing the James brand feels very human, not surprisingly. It's more of telling people about a club you might want to join than selling you this pocket knife. If you treat your audience not like something you target, but as a group of people you want to support, grow with, partner with, rally for, that's how you create intense loyalty in return. They will want to support you right back. I also see this spectrum theme going on from micro to macro with the James brand. Micro is all about sweating the details, making sure every fastener is tight, every line is straight, every email and photo is on point. Attention to detail to show you give a shit. And the macro, it's really about products that help people be a little more in the moment, feeling the weight of employees depending on you and creating a business that creates value and distributes that value right back into the community. Everything along this spectrum are critical things to making a functional brand not feel functional at all. Consumers want meaning. When we buy something, unconsciously we're thinking, what does this say about me? For the James brand, it says, you might not be jumping out of planes anytime soon, but you just might need to cut the foil off of a wine bottle at an outdoor concert. No matter where you find yourself, you know it won't let you down. Isn't that what a brand promise should be? I think so. You can learn more about the James brand at thejamesbrand.com. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. If you want to discuss how your company can find differentiation and activate your brand's raw truth in marketing, this is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. Thanks so much for listening.